With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rosé wines have gone through an amazing renaissance. You can now find rosé from any wine-producing countries and regions. Rosé spans from the deeply colored Mediterranean style to the distinctively pale wines of Provence. Rosé comes in many shades, but the color is not everything to the quality of the wine. There is more to what meets the eyes, there is a soil selection, altitude, the aspect that come to place to produce an outstanding style of rosé. For Elisabeth Gabay, Master of Wine, author of Rosé, Understanding the Pink Wine Revolution, Rosé wines are the product of the energy and creativity of winemakers who are experimenting and pushing the boundaries of what Rosé wines are. We will discuss the shaping of the contemporary rosé industry, what conscious rosé producers are doing in the vineyard and some of the more avant-garde way to make rosé, as well as how Provence came to be the leading producer of rosé. Hi, I'm Mattias Carpazza and this is the Looking Into Wine podcast. Wine and wine making can be complex, but this podcast has a simple mission. We want to give you the skills and tools to harness your passion about wine. Through this series, we will shine a spotlight on some of the different regions, process and concepts that shape the fascinating world of wine. I hope you enjoy the show and your own journey, Looking Into Wine. Welcome to Looking Into Wine. Today's guest is Elizabeth Gabay, author of Rosé, Understanding the Wine Evolution. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. So what, what was the idea when you started writing this book? Um, the original idea um, was because I live um, on the edge of Provence, was to write a guide to Provence, the wines of Provence. And with 90% of their wine being rosé, it was sort of rosé within the Provence world, but also a bit of the history of Provence. And uh, a classic wine library said, well, actually, we would rather have a book on just rosé, not just on Provence. And I was probably very much like a lot of other people at the time. Provence equaled rosé. Uh, most of the market wasn't really aware of rosé from anywhere else. So for me, it was very much um, a journey of discovery for me as the author as much as for the audience. Wow, it's a, it's a very broad topic and I think it's very difficult to put every all the aspect and every shades of rosé. I think my biggest takeaway from the book was like color doesn't indicate the quality, but indicate the style. I think because I was, I'm always very interested in the history of wine, and so looking into the history of rosé, seeing how um, until fairly recently color possibly was an indication of quality, with the darker rosé being a leftover of red wine. Um, residual sugar left in to balance the tannins 
And so historically, there was a hundred years where darker rosé really was the, the dregs, the leftover side of the wine. And I remember selling rosé in the 1980s from Provence, which was dark. It lasted two months. It wasn't brilliant. It had to be served very cold. So what we've seen is a technological development, viticulture, winemaking, everything, that allowed producers to understand how to make good rosé. And symbolically, paler was part of this new world view. And now winemakers are applying that knowledge to be able to produce better quality dark rosé. So you need to know the history to understand where that idea comes from. When you're talking about the technology, and uh, in, there's a section in the book where you explain about the vineyards and the work we're doing. What, what sort of techniques are you seeing at them? So um, you have to think a bit about how you define rosé before you can go any further on technology. And rosé is uh, not just colour. It's not this pale. It's not this dark. And rosé has the freshness and the acidity of a white wine and the fruit of a red wine. So if you want the freshness for a rosé, you have a couple of ways of doing it. You can harvest it early that you want on your the, the final rosé. So in the vineyards, what they've been looking at is how do you have grapes that mature to full ripeness but keep acidity? Leaf cover, whether you keep a greater canopy than you would for red wine. Altitude, altitude's really proving to do some quite good rosés with that acidity. The north-facing slope you wouldn't use for your red wine. So it's really, instead of being the leftover of red wine, it's become increasingly in the field, the mirror image. Is that right? Mirror image, the opposite of red wine. So like in, in Tuscany, you say, why are you making rosé? And they say things like, it's the vineyard where the red wine didn't ripen. But is there's a, there's a conscious choice now then for a lot of winemakers and then... Rather than before, you see, it was uh, the the lesser vineyard, but now they've started selecting vineyard to produce rosé. Start going on to the soil characteristics. You know, if it's got slightly more cool soil. So, but that is that is one way. So there are producers who dedicated vineyard, especially for rosé that are cooler. And then in Bordeaux, you, there are some producers saying, and this will apply for more marginal areas, depending on whether it's a hot or cold year, we don't always use the same vineyards. We balance because for them, the red is the primary production. So yes, there, the idea is that the vineyard is, there's a focus on make, using it for rosé wine from the beginning of the growing season. Definitely, you see these differences from like Bordeaux and different regions applying different knowledge to what is the rosé. And what rosé is difficult to pinpoint because there's so many shades and so many styles. So you get from very pale to deep, dark, and so many techniques used. And the Provence has become like the hub for, of rosé. 
how did they turn the image from being quite, as you say, dark before to this extreme pale? If, if there is a couple of points. Um, so as I say, when I started selling Provence Rosé in the 1980s, when it was this dark, often bled off the red wine, and there is the famous story of Régine Sumer from Tour de l'Avec talking to a Bordeaux producer who was telling her to make fresher white wine, direct press whole grapes, and she didn't want to risk destroying her white wine so she said you know what i'll try it on grenache and see if it works i've got nothing to lose and the resulting rosé was paler and then after the book was published i was going through i've kept books and books of tasting notes and i discovered a few other vineyards at the same time were all trying to look into how can we make a better, fresher, paler rosé? So there was evidently a movement at the end of the 1980s, early 90s, to make a better quality rosé. So um, throughout the 90s, the quality got better and better. Temperature control, more delicate, fresher acidity. It was very much, um, I mean, very exciting, very innovative at the time in the Rosé Research Centre. But then the key thing that happened was the early 2000s, leading up to 2007, there were grants from the EU to market wines. And so just as this grant appeared, Provence had arrived at high-quality rosé. So it was this synergy of the money was available um, the wine was available. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolly were renting Miraval to go to the Cannes Film Festival. It was just everything was right at the right time in the right place. And that, that led to the success that it is now. And um, in uh, your book, you mention new experimental ways and then people are making rosé. There is a beautiful picture of Rosé left outside on, on the floor. Yes. How, how does this Rosé work? So, um, Closibon is the most uh, famous example of this. So, they you go into their cellar and um, they weren't trying to be experimental. This is what is quite interesting for me, is they were just making their Rosé as they had always made it. Um, the same grape variety and in their cellar they have big old beer barrels not wine barrels they bought beer barrels in cheap and the 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 wine evaporates a little bit because it's on the coast and this layer of floor develops and interestingly i read a review about this wine last week evidently someone who's never tasted the wine who said it tastes like sherry it doesn't <laughs> when you taste this wine, there is no hint of oxidation. Um, it doesn't taste like a wine that you would say is old, it's faded or anything. All you can taste is a greater concentration of fruit. Somehow or other, the floor protects it from oxidation. So that is Closibon, and it makes fantastic wine that ages very well. Then the picture you're referring to of the rosé in the glass bottles, this is a slightly experimental winemaker just north of Nice um, where the floor develops. And again, if I gave it to you, you would say concentrated fruit character, no oxidation. 
I've tasted rosé under floor in Slovakia. So what it does is is just allow the fruit characters to come through without losing the acidity. You need acidity for the floor to develop. It's, a, it's interesting when you speak about Slovakia and you see rosés cropping up from everywhere and that is becoming a, like a portfolio in every winery in, in most of the part of the world. Well, that is partially um, not just the winemaker's choice. There are, you can talk to producers who make fantastic red wine and their importer will say, I love your red wine. Can you put in two cases of rosé, three cases of rosé? We have a demand for rosé. And in a number of cases, producers who have no idea how to make rosé, absolutely no idea, kind of go, okay, right, um, I'll add some rosé on next year. And I've spoken to one producer. I said, well, how did you know how to make rosé? You have no tradition of rosé. So he said, I went onto the website for a few Provence vineyards and I read what they do and I sort of, copied it and so you end up with this Provence style rosé in the middle of somewhere else and you think this is weird um, so producers are beginning to learn the market wants rosé next to the red but a lot of producers do not yet understand how to best use their local variety and local traditions to make their own local style so this is something I found really exciting with rosé. It's for me, it is the most energetic and innovative part of the wine market right now. Um, there's a there's there's a great influence from uh, like America to produce uh, rosé and uh, the the influence in buying a rosé as well. And uh, do you think that led to? But when I talk to um, or taste wine for the American market and for the uh, European market, for the rosé, there does seem to be a slight difference. And I would like to investigate that a bit more. I think they tend to go for a slightly fruitier, slightly rounder character than we're used to in Provence. You know, it's, sometimes it's a different wine, sometimes, not always. Um, so there is still national characteristics, but I think the American market and what they want um, will have an influence. Yes. And uh, I mean, in the section of the book in the USA, you you say there are four main styles: off dry blush, sine blend off, and intentional rosé, darker Spanish, and increasingly this dry Provence complex style. And do you think this are mirrored around the world? To a, to a certain extent. Um, but because... So Provence hit the world in 2007. or every, Everything happening. And in 2007, you suddenly started seeing um, a surge in rosé winemaking around the world, making rosé as they had always made it. So Provence is now 2020. There are an increasing number of Provence producers who are experimenting with what they're doing. But rosé producers around the world have only just reached 
the Provence style. So we've got this sort of evolving um, range of styles. And then you've got, say, in Australia, they have a patchwork of grape varieties that make enormous variation. So, yes, they're all, the growth in Provence style rosé is growing every year. But at the same time, we're getting a growth in totally different. So it's it's a ripple effect. It's not a clear linear effect. Because uh, obviously there is no only the pale market, but there is a massive production of dark uh, tradition, so-called traditional styles. It could be Spanish, Navarro, Chiavretto. Um, but that will also depend on if you want to export. So Chiaretto was slightly darker, but to export, they've had to become paler. Uh, Cerasuolo, for me, Cerasuolo, the best Cerasuolo was quite dark. But to export, those wines are becoming paler. So you're ending up with a split in, this is the rosé that will be drunk at home. And this is the export market. Do you think the export will accept this darker style? Do you... Depends on the sector. So I think if we get restaurants back again, um, which hopefully we will get, I think the darker style is very much the, the style that maybe sommeliers or small boutique wine merchants, they can hand sell, they can allow you to taste they can promote it. Uh, my big fear is that the divide will be the paler ones will be the mass market and the darker the niche. And and I hear people saying things like um, that the paler is better. And, and what if I ask them why, there's a lack of knowledge. And it's that knowledge that needs to creep up and be at the same rate. But I hope both will survive. Well, hopefully with uh, the interest of in Rosé and your books and other interest in Rosé, there will be a more surge in this knowledge and looking for what Rosé can do because it's such a, as I said, it's diverse. There's so many things. I, I drink so many different styles of Rosé and it's very interesting. And what, what what do you think uh, are the risks they could be? Because we have uh, this sort of like rosé could be a, like a champagne. It could be become like a soft brand. I mean, you can see it when you... I get the technical sheets for rosés when I'm tasting. And they're identical. So um, we have harvested early. We've kept the grapes cold. We ferment at a cool temperature with a rosé yeast, which quite often means strawberry fruit or grapefruit, in tank. We bottle after two, three months on the lees, so the wine will be ready by February and it's on the market. And exactly the same method and technology is repeated over and over again. And I think for me that is the danger, that this is, becomes the generic brand it's a cheaper wine, supermarket wine. Rosé is not only cheap. It can be actually there is a super premium style of rosé, and which 
How what would would you look in a difference between like high quality rosé? What do, how do you define it? Um, so I'm often asked this question, and I say, well, okay, well, how do you define a premium red or white? And people say, well, it has weight, it has complexity, it has aging ability. And I get exactly the same for a premium rosé. There should be no difference. So for me, the top premium rosés will have greater weight and substance, greater extract, complexity, aging ability. And a rosé that will make me excited is a rosé where I don't mind if it's not, if it's a bit quirky. I'm looking for a rosé that makes me think, that will go with food, that will have all sorts of other complex things. There are some premium, not all premium rosés are in oak. You have some that are in cement and then you get a lovely texture behind it. So that for me is what a premium rosé is. I want a rosé that makes me sit up, think and is enjoyable not iced cold. If I have to drink it iced cold, I'm not interested. I've got a comment on that. <laughs> so when you're talking about uh, aging in rosé, and uh, there was a, an, a section in your book when you would, went and asked for some old samples, it, how, how was the reaction? So I realised that as I was tasting older vintages, um we just didn't have a vocabulary for describing older rosé. You know, older reds, we look at the colour becoming more garnet, more mahogany. We're looking for more integrated tannins, softer tannins for white wine, darker yellow, you know, sort of me- mellow flavours. And for rosé, as soon as people were saying it no longer has bright red primary fruit and is no longer bright pink, it was dismissed. And so I felt we weren't really developing positive tasting notes for an older uh-huh. rosé. So I did a call out in Provence. And in Provence now, if you ask for older rosés, anything younger than three years is young. So we've got to that stage in Provence. And so I had one producer who rang me up and he said, oh, you know, I'd really like to taste some older rosés with you. Can you come round for lunch? So we turned up for lunch and he said, I've gone through my entire cellar and we've discovered a rosé from, it's in the book, 1992, I think it was. It was slightly oxidised, but it was the bottle we all finished. It was amazing. It had complexity that would go with food. So my feeling about older rosé is that it does not taste like young rosé. Thank goodness, because it's aged. Well, what what sort of flavors do you think it develops into? Just I never have the occasion to taste one old. <laughs> uh, with Provence rosé, I found it um, the uh, with age, it tends to take on slightly more red berry, uh, dried orange peel type flavors, um, whereas. So I tasted a 1976 Negramaro from Salento two years ago, and that had slightly more mineral, uh, again, that slightly bitter orange. But, and then the oldest was a, what, 59 Cabernet d'Anjou, which was dried apricots, dried peaches, creamy. So what I would love to do in my dreams is to do older vintages of rosé but from different places because I'd quite like to see whether 
different grape varieties take on different flavours with age. So that is an ambition, but there are not so many people who have older rosés. Um, I mean, Tondonia, the current vintage is 2009. The Grand Reserva. Yes. And uh, it's not something a lot of people realise that then rosé can age, and definitely rosé is not only for summertime, which, how has it been market? It's a problem. Um, I know last year there were a lot of wine merchants in America saying they hadn't cleared all their stock, and they they were very sad because they said, you know, that just as the rosé is opening out and becoming a bit more complex the market is saying no we don't want it we want the new vintage so i i it was a discussion on twitter about older roses as well somebody said to me but they don't age and i said how do you know have you ever tasted an old rose and they said no so I realise that there is actually a lot more to be done with promoting rosés with age. Do you think the new technology, there's a lot of stress in the book about new technology have brought the, the quality of rosé up. What, was, what do you think are the key technological changes? In the- I think... Um, I think because there's been a lot of research, so... Um, Although temperature control, cooler fermentation and handling of grapes has resulted in fresher fruit and a greater awareness of the the health of the grapes has now meant that a lot of natural wine producers are also making rosé at warmer temperature. So it's not one particular thing. It's a combination of work in the field plus work in the cellar. So... I talk about the technology a lot because I think people are experimenting. You know, 20 years ago, orange wine was maybe more faulty, whereas now people who make skin-fermented white wine understand that there has to be hygiene in the cellar or there has to be healthier grapes. So it's very much um, a pooling together from lots of different sides. There's a, I think there's a better care, a bit more uh, consciousness when making those wines so that can change, have changed the shape of rosé. It's just a, an interesting point in that we all think of um, hygienic sellers making better wine. And I did challenge one student and I said, OK, have you never tasted a good wine from a slightly scruffy wine cellar? So... It's, I don't, I'm not asking for hygienic surgeries, but just a better awareness. Well, well just the last couple of questions. What, what would you say is the best way to understand rosé to someone who's just getting into the, to the wine? Don't be a wine snob. I think uh, there are plenty of people who put up a barrier straight away and say, because it's pink, I'm not expecting it to be very good. I think it's like, I mean, when I first started wine tasting, I was experimenting all the time. I had a different bottle each week. I tried something different each week to see which where, where I, uh, wine I like. And maybe to do the same with rosé. I would say if you're serious about rosé, don't look at presentation. 
Um, well, what about uh, what do you think is uh, is going to be the future for Rose? What style do you think are going to crop up? So I'm discussing this on another webinar with some wine producers. I seriously think. Um, so I'm talking only about sort of an upmarket rosé. I'm not talking about the general um, big volume rosé. I think producers are going to maybe be looking at how to get complexity in the wine without making a heavy wine. As soon as it becomes heavy, we're going towards red wine. So as I said earlier, I think altitude and north-facing slopes, especially with climate change, is going to become very important. I think greater expression of different grape varieties. Uh, until fairly recently, the idea was that you couldn't identify rosé... Sorry, thunderstorm. Um, you couldn't identify rosé by its grape varieties. The idea was that it was a sort of generic style. And I think that is going to be something much more important, that you taste a glass of rosé and you said, that's definitely a Zinamavro from northern Greece, just as you would a red wine. And I think that is a, a trend that we should be looking at for premium rosé. Identity, an identity in the, in the glass. And exactly. Identity. Something else to look for. Elizabeth, I think, that covers uh, all the questions I had. And uh, thank you so much for your time for today. And uh, where where can people can find you on for the book? And um, the book is available currently Amazon and the Classic Wine Library website. Um, we just show you can't see it, but as the cover has a glass of rosé on the front. And you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, occasionally on Facebook if I recognise somebody. And you also have a website. And I also have a website, which is actually elizabethgabbe.com. Um, and I'm currently reworking um, a website called pink.wine, which will have details of the book. Uh, so, yes, coming up. And now I'm considering the... Rosé world is just so dynamic. Is it time to do a second book? That will be, that will be something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's the big question. Yes. But, um, thank you so much for your time today, Elizabeth. Thank you. You joined the conversation with Elizabeth Gabay, Master of Wine, author of the book Rosé Understanding the Pink Wine Revolution on Looking into Wine. Be sure to go to mattiascarpazza.com and remember to join our mailing list now to receive the latest news and projects that are coming up. If you like the podcast, please give us a 5-star review and tell your friend to subscribe. They're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartMusic and every major listening app, as well as at mattiascarpazza.com, where you can listen the podcast freely and earlier. A special thanks to today's guest, Elisabeth Gabay. Music produced by Samuele Di Nardo. Audio edited by Tommaso Ascoli. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.